Welcome to the SYA podcast, giving you teachings from the young adult ministry of Shepherd Church, where it's our mission to lift up Christ that the world might believe. We meet every Thursday at Shepherd Church in Porter Ranch. For more info, go to wearesya.com. So there have always been religious people and non-religious people that are endlessly talking about evil, the end times, the last days, the second coming of Jesus, heaven, hell, and the end of the world, right? I heard a youth pastor joke once that you can always get a young crowd interested in sermons if you talk about one of three things. If you talk about the end times, or second, if you talk about sex, or third, talk about will there be sex in the end times? There's always going to be people focused on the end of the world. And I think that in some ways, psychologically, it might be a way of avoiding thinking about your own personal end, right? Like your own death or your own regrets. But I think that right now, especially, even though there's been times in history where people were especially thinking about these things, but we are talking about and thinking about evil and suffering and injustice. And I think some of us are thinking about the end of the world, right? Heaven and hell. And so I thought we would unpack a little bit about the ever-present and coming attractions. But before we jump into end times and heaven and hell, I want to begin with evil and with suffering in our world. It's the most ancient question. It's the most troubling doubt among believers and unbelievers alike, like questions like, why does God allow evil and suffering? Or why do bad things happen to good people? And intellectually, of course, evil and suffering is not an argument against the existence of God because it points directly to objective morality. Here's what I mean. If there are oughts and shoulds, like there shouldn't be enslaved humans, or there ought not to be racism, or there ought to be freedom, right, for everyone, or health care. As soon as you pronounce any kind of oughts and shoulds, you're going to eventually get to something that we call God. And as an aside, as soon as you start talking about proving God's existence or that he doesn't exist, I'm out. Because Proving it either way is impossible, but the reality of evil and life as suffering is one of the most universal truths that we have as human beings, and once you acknowledge that there are some shoulds and some should-nots, you're inching very close again to what we call God. So, if the universe created itself from nothing, everything is the result of random actions with no ultimate purpose or meaning, and therefore good and evil would have no absolute meaning. C.S. Lewis wrote that a man does not call a line crooked unless that man has some idea of a straight line. He says, atheism turns out to be too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Now, it would be very easy here to lose ourselves down in the rabbit hole asking, what is evil exactly? But but even in the shallow end of asking that question, conundrums are all around. Like, think about pain and suffering. If you put your hand in fire, you're going to have pain, right? 
So is pain evil? But then we ask about, you know, what about the statement, no pain, no gain? Because we, we understand that there is some benefit to some pain. Or is it evil to cut someone open with a knife? Well, what about C-section birth? So then does the knife cutting being evil, does it depend upon the motivation? Or consider earthquakes or tsunamis or hurricanes. Are they evil? Now, consider just earthquakes. What does science say regarding our evolution as human beings on this planet without earthquakes? Or look up, you can just Google this, how do tectonic activity, how is it essential to sustaining life on earth? So I don't want to get trapped even in the shallow end of this rabbit hole, but most of us would agree that God is the creator and that human beings sin freely, all of us, and that most of the evil, pain, and suffering in the world is human-caused. So let me try to define evil simply without getting lost in the rabbit hole. It is philosophically clear that, biblically speaking, good can only exist in conformity with God, and evil, therefore, must mean being out of conformity with God, like being and doing that is contrary to how God designed us and how God designed his creation to be and do. And this means God, of course, cannot sin. He cannot lie. He cannot do evil. And evil cannot exist in its own right. It depends on good for its existence. Like death depends on life for both its existence and its power. So evil is like the deprivation or corruption of the good, right? Like evil is the rejection of the truth and of that which is right. So evil depends on good. It uses it. Like like the murderer doesn't kill to be evil, at least in his or her mind. In their mind, they kill to remove some negative from their life or to take a positive from someone else into their own life. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, abortion is an, e- an easy example here. Like the motive of the abortion is often cloaked in apparent goodness, right? Like, This baby needs to be removed to allow me to have a normal life. I'm too young. To allow me to go to school. Uh, We might even say this baby needs to be removed because I won't be able to take care of it the best way. Now, ultimately, the highest possible good cannot exist without the possibility of rejecting that good. So it's the rejection. That's, That's what we call evil. The rejection of the highest good. So Proverbs, in the, in, the, in the scriptures, Proverbs is pregnant with talk of evil deeds and evil motives. And you need to read Proverbs chapter, chapter 6, verse 16 through 19, or read it again as it describes seven evil things that God hates. And so the question isn't, if there's so much evil and suffering in the world, does God even exist? But rather, the question is, since there is evil and there is suffering, what is God like? Or maybe, why does God allow it? Epicurus, the ancient Greek philosopher, he posed the ultimate problem like this. He said, either God wants to abolish evil and cannot, or he can, but does not want to, or he cannot and does not want to. If he wants to, 
but cannot, he is impotent. If he can and does not want to, he is wicked. But if God both can and wants to abolish evil, then how comes evil in the world? I have a friend named Robin who was a youth pastor years ago. He had five kids. They ranged from one years old up to 10. And his wife got cancer. And she went through the chemo, and eventually she went through remission. Like, they had considered it an answer to their prayers. But then the cancer came back eventually stronger, and she died. And she was one of those people that you would just shake your head and wonder, why her, right? David, the senior pastor that I worked with in Missouri, he was Robin's brother-in-law. And after Robin's wife, Diane, after she died, their four-year-old son was running and he fell down hard and he cried out, mom. And then he stopped. He was getting ready to cry out, mommy. But he stopped in mid-sentence and he looked up at his uncle David and he cried for him instead. Sickness, and disease, like we can try to understand them as consequences somehow connected to Adam and Eve's sin in the world. And Paul might imply something like this in Romans chapter 8, verses 20 through 22, but it's not specific. So sickness and disease, in some ways at least, is mysterious, or at least we don't know how it's all connected. But clearly, God allows it. And Scripture is very clear about this. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 14 is one of the most explicit. It says, there are righteous good people who experience what the wicked deserve. And there's wicked people who experience what the righteous deserve. And So I can't explain, nor do I claim to understand, if like most diseases are just a part of having a world, or if it's also or only somehow connected to sin being in the world. And Scripture presents, this this is fundamentally true, that Scripture presents God as completely good and completely all-powerful, but one who honors our freedom, human freedom to choose, and to sin. And therefore, God allows evil and suffering. And while I don't know how to understand suffering that doesn't come directly from human sin, I do know that evil and most pain comes from human choice, from sin. So what I want to do is unpack a few common questions that surround all of this. Here's the first one. Why didn't God just make it where humans couldn't sin, right? That would at least alleviate much of the world's evil and pain and suffering, But this would, of course, mean that we have to become robots who are incapable of free choice and therefore love. And freedom means evil has to be a possibility. We kind of talked about this earlier. Freedom is a part of God's nature. It's a part of being made in His image. And so freedom to choose necessitates the possibility to choose other than God's good. So there's no such thing as love without the possibility of evil. So here's the next question then that flows from that. Are the benefits of freedom worth all the suffering? Greg Boyd, in his book, Letters from a Skeptic, he quotes his 70-year-old atheist father. When his father heard about our freedom to choose as the origin of most suffering, he said this, One has to question the wisdom of a creator who would wager so much for freedom. Is it all worth it? 
to create a world in which madmen like Hitler or Stalin can use their freedom to take away the freedom and the lives of millions of others it is quite frankly very poor man management. If he values these freedoms so much, why in the world did God make it so tenuous that the will of one to destroy the freedom of millions? Is the whole thing that freedom is nice, but I don't know if it's worth all the evil and pain that we see in this world. End quote. Now, this is the question, right? Like, is freedom worth it? So here's a few things to consider. If freedom is worth the potential suffering there would likely be as much or more love and good from freedom as there is suffering. And right now, in our current media-driven culture, it's, it's possible to only see the pain and the injustices and to miss how much profound beauty and love and sacrifice there is in the world. And listen, it is there, and it's there in mass. But you have to just be able to look for it and receive it. That we have incredible potential for evil reveals also our incredible potential for good, right? Like, there are Hitlers. There is racism and terrorism. But there are also Mother Teresas. There are also Martin Luther King Juniors. And there are also unknown heroes everywhere. There's simply no way for freedom and love without the possibility of evil. Like, love is the point. But love hurts. Love always hurts at some point. Think about friendship and sacrifice for family and truly loving another person, especially once you become a parent. But this will inevitably bring rejection and disappointment and death. And it's true that if a person never loved, they would suffer less. But man, consider how much smaller their life would be if they never loved. So if God didn't create a world where love was possible because of the risk of evil, what kind of God would he be? It's it's similar to thinking about every parent who chooses to have children despite the broken world that they know their children will be born into, right? So it's not freedom for freedom's sake or even really freedom for goodness sake. It is ultimately freedom for love's sake. So is freedom worth the potential evil? Here's another question to consider. What if the evil and suffering of this life wasn't the last word? And this is a powerful part of the gospel of Jesus. Romans chapter 8 verse 18. It says, what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that is to come. Revelation chapter 21 verse 4. It says, God will remove all sorrows And there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain for the old world and its evils are gone forever. Okay, what I want to do is I want to give you two quick truths concerning evil. And then I want to, I want to end with three action steps, like to, to be able to do something. Okay, here's the first truth. You and I are inconsistent with our hatred of evil, right? Like we hate evil except our own. We justify our bad by comparing ourselves to those who are, quote-unquote, worse than us. But when bad happens to us, often it is, you know, like, God, how could you allow this? This is not fair. And often, even when the pain comes as a consequence from our own sin choices, we still wonder, God, 
How could you allow this? It's, it's like the high school boy years ago when I was in Missouri as a youth pastor, this kid who thought he got his girlfriend pregnant. He came to me and he told me that he had prayed that God would make his girlfriend not pregnant. I'm not exactly sure what he was thinking in his mind on how that would be possible. But I also understand that when you're in pain, when you're worried, when you're confused, when you're broken and shaken, you're thinking emotionally, not logically. But he said to me that if God doesn't answer my prayer, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that maybe God's not real. But if God does answer my prayer, then I will do anything. Now, this is certainly immature, but it reveals a little bit about how I think all of us have thought about evil and God, at least at some point in our life and maybe even right now. If you have, or when you do think like this about God, when you tend to knee-jerk react like it's not fair when it happens to you, right? When you hate evil and justice, accept that which comes from you. If you've done this, or when you do, consider this. Is life supposed to be about my comfort? Has God promised His hand in that? Second, think about this. When good happens to me, do I immediately see it as a, as a blessing for me being a good person? When bad things happen to me, do I see it immediately as a punishment from God for having done some bad at some point in the past? And do I then find someone who's quote-unquote worse than me, and I begin to wonder and rail against God, why don't they suffer as much as I do? Here's a third thing to consider. Do you question suffering around you as much as your own? I have two observations about that. Someone has something very bad happen in their life, and they're asking me, how could something like this happen to me, right? Now, again, I said this already, pain is personal, and it's emotional, and it often makes us illogical. But logically speaking, many of us have been very insulated by being Americans, right? And I'll wonder to myself when I'm listening to someone who's had something really bad happen in their life and they're asking me, how could something like this happen? How could God allow it? I'll wonder, did you not even consider or did you not ever consider why God, how could you allow things like this to happen before this bad thing happened to you? Like, have you, ha, had you never looked around the, the world at the massive suffering that happens to people day in and day out? And here's a side note for current events. Listen, keep fighting for justice. But at the same time, be honest enough to acknowledge that America can't be 100% evil if we are able to rail against its system so freely, Right? Like, only a very privileged and liberal country, I'm not talking about individuals right now, I'm talking about only a very privileged or liberal country could even do that. So, hold those two things in tension. But here's a second observation about, do you question suffering around you as much as your own suffering? Here's another observation. Some people only begin to focus on evil and, God, why would you allow this happen when they don't want to submit to Christ or when bad things happen to them? What I'm trying to say is we are often inconsistent with our hatred of evil. Here's truth number two. Doubts and questions about this are okay. And actually, they can be very, very healthy. 
My dad was one of the best people I've ever known, right? Like he died of a two-year battle with cancer in 2009. I was 33 years old. My dad was 65. Like that's still young, but it's not, it's not as tragic as a child, right? It's, it's nothing like what my friend Robin had to go through when his wife Diane died at such a young age and they had five kids, right? And so I knew this when my dad died, I was 33. I knew that good people die, of bad things, right? But I still have moments of emotion where even if I don't think it logically in my brain, I feel this sense of, God, why? Life is mysterious, and questions and prayers are often left unanswered, right? And the Bible is mostly silent in trying to give us reasons for why. In John chapter 9, Jesus and the disciples, they walked by this man who was born blind, and the disciples turned to Jesus and say, Jesus, who sinned that this happened, this man or his parents? Because this was the cultural assumption of the day. Things like blindness was like a curse from God because of the sin of the parents, or even the child had sinned somehow when they were born, right? Like this was, this was kind of like the, the working idea in the ancient world. And so check out what Jesus does in the next verse in John chapter 9. He doesn't say, you guys, you guys are so stupid. That's just a like, you know, uh, kind of a, a myth, an urban legend or a cultural legend. They say, Jesus, who sinned, him or his parents? Jesus says this, neither of them sinned that this happened, but watch this. And then he heals the man, right? I love it that Jesus doesn't like even try to change the whole like assumption narrative. He just answers them. Neither of them sinned, but watch this. It's a mystery. He doesn't give us the answer on why. So why was he blind? If neither of them sinned, why is there blindness in the world? He doesn't answer. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, it says, Moses says, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of God's law. Maybe God doesn't give reasons because understanding wouldn't help anyway. Like, can you imagine like God coming down or Jesus coming back and like getting out this big, massive marker board and just charting everything out just, just for you, just for your personal life. And the worst thing that's ever happened. And he, and he gives like all these, like the worst thing that's ever happened in your life, but it wasn't based on, you know, a sin consequence, you know, like a choice you made, a consequence. And he charts it all out and it takes up the entire marker board. It's massive. It's huge. But he gives it and it goes way back. Like he basically goes back to the beginning of time, right? And he gives you all the reasons why it's like a domino, right? This chart. And, and then he's like, there you go. W would that even help? Like the worst thing you've ever been through, and Jesus explains it like a, like, a, like a math problem, would it help? So maybe God doesn't give reasons because understanding doesn't help, and really what we're looking for is comfort when we are in pain. Maybe it would be impossible for us to actually understand if the reasons were given. In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Because in this world you will have pain. You will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus has always been honest with us. You and I are going to experience pain and suffering and evil. So how do we deal with it? What are, what are some actions? 
I want to give you three. Here's the first one. Deal with the evil within you. Much of how we approach evil and pain and suffering is psychological, right? We doubt and we question God's design as often as a means to not submit to Him, not to obey Him. Or we begin to shape our life narrative where we are the hero and, and we're the victim also. Like we magnify the pain and evil that we receive from other people, but we minimize our own, like our own bad. When we cause pain and, and, and evil in other people's lives, we minimize that. And right now we're in a time of attention on large-scale injustice, which is good. But it's easy to demonize and blame shift and to justify, right? To pull ourselves out of maybe part of the problem. Jesus, his little brother James, and the Apostle Paul all speak to this in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Why do you worry about the little speck of dust in your friend's eye when you have a log sticking out of your own eye? Like, how can you think of saying to your friend, let me help get rid of that little speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? You're a hypocrite, Jesus says. First, get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will be able to see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. His little brother James in James chapter 4, he says, what's causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? It is very tempting and trendy right now to, to blame the systems of our country, of our world, of whatever institutions, on all the bad. But the scriptures do something different. They don't ignore the systems and power structures of the world that are often bad, but instead they point to you as an individual coming within us, the evil desires in us, in you, in me. And the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 21, he says, Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. So what is a choice or what's a part that you can take responsibility for in something bad around you? What, what possibly was your part in that? Where is an apology needed from you? And what good thing can you do? You start by Dealing with the evil within you. Here's the second action. Deal with your perspective. The little brother of Jesus, once again, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, he says, Consider it joy when you go through pain, when you go through difficulties, because your faith will be tested when that happens, and that will produce perseverance. Notice it doesn't tell us why the suffering comes, but James gives us a way to see it. Here's another one from the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. He says, We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we're not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. This perspective from James and Paul, it doesn't lie. It doesn't say, this pain, this pain, this difficulties, these trials are amazing. It's wonderful. No, it chooses to look at the pain with a certain lens for how it could be used for good. 
There's a story of an organization in Montana that offered $5,000 for every wolf captured alive. So two hunters, Sam and Jed, they headed for the hills, right? They wanted to make some money, go catch some wolves. Day and night, they scoured the mountains and, and forests, searching. Exhausted after three days of hunting without any success, they both fell asleep. And during the night, Sam suddenly wakes up to find that he and Jed are surrounded by a pack of 50 wolves, all of them with flaming red eyes and teeth bared. They're snarling at the two hunters and preparing to pounce. Sam nudges Jed and says, hey, wake up, bro. We are going to be rich. (laughs) It's all the way you see it. But there's also a temptation here to over-spiritualize everything, right? And just to pretend like you're confident because you think like that's, I guess, what religious people and people who are close to God are supposed to do. We, we begin to proclaim how God's going to use all this bad in our life when you simply don't know how God might be able to use it. People will quote Romans chapter 8, verse 28, right, in this way. It says, in all things... God works for the good of those who love him. Listen, totally true, right? It's right there in the scriptures. But in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the pain, we just don't usually know what that good will be. So here it is, knowing that God will walk with you through it, believing that God will not abandon you in it, trusting that God will strengthen you for it. This is how we deal This is how we build a perspective that actually works in the only world you and I really could ever live in, as far as we know. But as far as how God will use your pain, your suffering, the evil that's been done to you, you're going to have to be patient because retrospect is how it actually works. We're not like prophets for all of our pain. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph's, Joseph, he's been sold into slavery. He was imprisoned. Like he goes through all these things, right? But eventually he's elevated. He's the king's, the king of Egypt's right-hand man. And 25 years later, he could say to his brothers who had sold him into slavery 25 years before, he could say, Joseph could say, you intended evil by what you did to me. But God intended it for the saving of many lives. Joseph didn't say that when he was in the pit of prison or when he was accused uh, falsely for rape. Joseph said that 25 years later as he could look back and see what God had done. So you deal with your perspective. How do you look at your pain? How do you look at your suffering? And here's the third action I want to give you. Decide to help other people who are suffering right now. A lot of times we don't know what to say, right, when people are really going through some very difficult things. And so often we use cliches. My friend Robin, who lost his wife, Diane, they had five kids. I told you about that earlier. Someone said to one of Robin's kids, I think even at the funeral, they said, well, honey, God just needed your mama up in heaven. He needed another angel. Okay, first off, I mean, like, do dead people become angels? Like, no, right? Second, why in heaven or hell would God need another angel, right? Like, if you were that little kid or if you were Robin, you'd be thinking, what are you talking about? But these aren't actually meant, when we say cliches like this, it's not actually meant to help the person who's suffering. It's usually meant to fill the awkward void 
we, we want to make ourselves feel better. And then here's what happens. The responsibility falls on the one who's suffering, the one in pain. They have to say something like, if they're, if they're nice, they have to say something like, oh, yeah, right, totally, thank you. I was at a funeral, just as a, not as a pastor, just as a friend um, of a woman who had lost her husband. He was young, uh, out running, and just fell over and died. He was in great shape. She had been married once before, and in her first marriage, her husband had committed adultery with her best friend. So this woman had been through it, right? And I'm, I'm, and I'm not close to this woman. Uh, really, my wife was closer to her and her family, but I was a pastor uh, by then, and I'm, I'm going through the line just to give this woman who lost her husband a hug at the funeral. And she hugs me, and we don't know each other super well, but she hugs me for a long time. And she says to me, she whispers as she's crying, she says, why? It's not fair. And I simply replied, you're right. It's not fair at all. I'm so sorry. She pulled away from the hug and she stared at me and she continued to cry, but she looked weirdly happy. And she said, thank you, Dusty. And I moved on. Sometimes helping is just saying the obvious, right? Often helping is just being there. Romans chapter 12, verse 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, it says, God comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves received from God. And consider how God actually comforted you, right? With His presence, with the presence of those you love, with time, with perspective. So how can you help those around you who are suffering? Listen, answers, I'm I'm doing, I know you can't see me, but quotation marks here, answers for why God allows evil and suffering can't simply be intellectual, right? Because the question comes from an emotional, personal place. This is why God's response to the world ultimately wasn't a reason, but a person. God's Son, Jesus, became one of us. He suffered and He died. John Stott, one of my favorite all-time theologians, he admitted that suffering, evil, pain in the world is the greatest challenge to the Christian faith. But listen to his conclusion, and I quote, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries, and I've stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha. His legs crossed, his arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth. A remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I've had to turn away, and in my imagination, I've turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. That's the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain, and he entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death, and he suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in light of this. There is still a question mark against 
human suffering, but over it, we boldly stamp another mark, the cross, which symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in a world such as ours. End quote. If God is good, why is there so much evil and suffering? Allow me to flip that. If God is not good, why so much joy and laughter? Where does this rising and inescapable sense of gratitude come from? If God is not good, why did he enter our humanity, our suffering, our pain, and our loss? Answers come and go, and our quote-unquote answers evolve with time and experience. But in the end, God gave to us Jesus, one who understands, one who suffered, and one who is present right here, right now, may be present most of all during our own pain. Thinking through all of this and, um, and, and unpacking it and talking about it was essential for me before we dive into like the second coming or the last days or heaven and hell. Because whatever opinions and interpretations are offered, in the end, what matters is this. Jesus with you. The presence of Jesus, because when pain and suffering and evil comes our way, when storms rage with Jesus, we have an anchor that is more certain than like answers. With Jesus, we have the only nest where our souls can find eternal and permanent rest. And so, my friend, whatever pain and suffering, whatever doubt or struggle you're going through right now, may you know in your heart, in your soul, may you know that Jesus is with you. May you know that God has responded to the world. God has responded to our doubts and to our questions, and He has responded with something far more precious and far better than an answer. He has responded with a person. And while Jesus doesn't promise to swoop in and alleviate all of our doubts and all of our pain, he does promise to step into it with you and to walk ahead of you and behind you and next to you all the way home. Thanks for listening to the SYA podcast. Be sure to connect with us on Instagram at wearesya.